Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. The last time we covered basically the 18 points of apostleship, really based on Jesus' instructions uh, to his 12 in chapter 10. And today we're going to cover one of uh, my most favorite men of the Bible, and that's John the Baptist. And really using his life as a segue into seeing just how serious we are about the things of God and following the Lord. Starting with verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. He commanded his disciples. And if we are truly his disciples, if we are truly followers of Christ, what does he say in John 14? If you love me, you'll follow my word. It's important. He departed to preach and teach in their cities. And you see this really neat ebb and flow that Jesus does. Uh, Real discipleship. He teaches the masses. He, He helps them to learn. And then he shows them how to do it. And then he gives them a go at it. And then what he does is he goes again and shows them. So if there's anything that they did wrong or any mistakes, they can learn from him. So you see, this is, discipleship is really an involvement. It's really a, an input of your personal time with both parties. And no doubt the disciples, they asked a lot of questions. There was a lot of interaction, and they try to emulate their teacher. Verse 2, and when John, now this is John the Baptist, had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John the Baptist, the Bible tells us, is the greatest of all men born of women. So that pretty much means everybody. John the Baptist is a transitional figure. He's really, in a sense, the last of the Old Testament prophets. But most importantly, he was the heralder of the Messiah. And that's what made him most important. But what do we see John do? He sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Um... Jesus, are you really the Messiah, or is there somebody else that we should be looking for? That's interesting. Well, history tells us that Herod Antipas, at the time, imprisoned John the Baptist in the Marcarius Fortress, awaiting death for his exposing the sins of Herod Antipas. But what do we see here? What do we see in John the Baptist, this great man that Jesus speaks about, which we'll find out? Number one, when we follow God's plan... And we can be doing everything right. Things don't always play out the way we think they might, do they? John the Baptist is in prison, awaiting execution. He's probably thinking, sending his disciples, Lord Jesus, when are we going to smash the Romans? When are you going to smash this place and free me from this prison? And you and I are going to vanquish the Roman Empire. It didn't happen. The second point, that even the greatest among us have times of difficulty have times of crisis. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. We all have times of crisis. And I'm really, I really believe that you're going to be blessed today because the last few verses are one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible where Jesus really comforts us, encourages us, and strengthens us. But we do have times of crisis. And if you've walked in here today with a financial issue or a relative issue or some type of relationship, Whatever the case may be, it's okay to be in crisis mode, but we lean on the Lord for our strength. The third point is that John called out sin, which is sometimes foreign to the modern church. It's offensive. We're East Coasters. You know, we, we, can, we can get under people's skin by doing that. But John called out sin, and when we call out sin, 
will also pay the price by the world for doing that. Now, some are outspoken just to be outspoken, and there's nothing to that. If we're going to be outspoken, it should be based on God, what God says in his word, and not based on our own whims and opinions. The fourth point is that sometimes our dishonor is for God's glory. No doubt, John the Baptist glorified God in everything he did, even on his way to the executioner's block. And that's probably the most difficult and painful thing out of the four for us to accept. Would you agree with that? Right? So my dishonor is for God's glory. I remember going back a few years, I had terrible sleep apnea. I mean, my wife at some point just would go on the couch. I mean, I was making noises in my sleep. I couldn't breathe. And uh, I had to go for four very painful surgeries. Uh, three times they worked deep into my sinus tissue. I'm violating my HIPAA rights here telling you this. Uh, and one of the surgeries was a, a very invasive throat surgery. The uvula's gone, the tonsils. They took everything out of there so I could breathe. They had to create a hole so the air could get in. And I just remember even one year I had two surgeries in a row and it was miserable. But you know what? I got to know my surgeon very well. And I actually tell some of you who asked me to send you there. He's an Orthodox Jewish man, and we've had many discussions. I gave him a book from a Jewish doctor about the Messiah. He started listening to our messages and talking to me about the messages. Listen, that was a miserable time of my life. But looking back, I hope I don't have to do it again, but it was worth it if it brings that man closer to salvation. Now, it gets a little tricky when you try to witness to people and you're still on anesthesia. That's a little weird. I just remembered not getting the response I wanted, just some laughter from the hospital staff, but my wife's like, shh, you're not completely out of it yet. But God, that was pretty neat. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, I love the way Jesus answers. And he doesn't always answer with a yes or no answer. He answers the way he wants to answer. And he always answered always with the word. You can see in the book of Matthew, if you have a study Bible, you'll see that the uh, quotations from the Old Testament are italicized. So you can see all the Old Testament references in this book. And we covered that when we spoke about what we were going to discuss in the book of Matthew. We can see the evidence. Number one, did you know that what he says is comprised of uh, quotations from Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 60, and Isaiah 61? Now today, sometimes we can be over-focused on our methods as men over the work of the word of God. I'm just going to uh, talk to you about a brief interview that I studied in more detail with Pastor Andy Stanley, and we talked about his book, was a good evangelistic tool, and Ed Stetzer. Now, Stanley makes some comments, and he denigrates really the verse-by-verse -verse teaching from the Bible and says you really can't grow people like that, which is a little shocking to me. He also said that not all scripture is equally applicable or relevant to every stage of life. Now, that was a foolish comment. I'm not going to judge the man's heart, but what he said was foolish. If we go to 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think sometimes we as men try to assign a greater importance to our methods versus what we're actually methoding over. In other words, it doesn't matter what the Baptist method are. It doesn't matter what the Methodist methods are. It doesn't matter what Calvary Chapel's methods are if we're not basing it on the word of God. And the beauty of going through the entire Bible is it eliminates the pet doctrines that denominations have that pit each other against each other. When you go through the whole scripture, you can't have a pet doctrine because you have to cover everything that God says. So the word. Verse 6, he says, blessed are those who aren't offended by me. The word for offended in the Greek is scandalizo, where we get the word scandal from, or tripped up or enticed to sin. See, here's the equation. God was doing miracles. And John, the greatest of God's servant, was going to die. That was a little hard to reconcile the two there. To know God is working. But what about my situation? You see, circumstances can make us doubt a lot of things. Would you agree with that? When we're really feeling the pressure, we're really feeling the heat, we start to doubt. Where are you, Lord? What about me? Those Christian people in the church seem to be doing good, but I'm struggling here, Lord. I'm barely making it. I'm bobbing water here. I don't get it. But the thing is, no matter what happens, we can't be tempted. We can't be scandalized into falling away, into putting the Lord aside, the sin of unbelief. God is still there. Verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Again, going back to the word, Malachi 3. Quote, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. End quote. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Amen. (laughs) She likes it. (laughs) Jesus now teaches the multitudes on John the Baptist. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Number one, a reed shaken by the wind. Well, reeds grew in the marshes, and they blew with the wind. No matter which way the the wind blew, the reed would follow the blowing of the wind and and then sway back again. And this is really emblematic of men that bow to political pressure, that bow to peer pressure. And if we know our history, the religious leaders at the times were in cahoots with the political system, but not John. There was a reason why he was isolated in the wilderness and grew up with the Holy Spirit. So he wouldn't come on the scene and they would offer him things to get him to shut up. But he didn't. He didn't bow. Two, did you go to see a man in soft garments? No. He says they're in king's houses. And John was in the king's prison waiting to have his head chopped off. 
Right? So you, you weren't going to find John with manicures and pedicures and his hair beautifully done and, and $1,000 suits and such. He was in the king's prison. And why should John even care about what Heather was, or Heather, what Herod was doing? <laughs> I not care what Heather's doing. Because Herod <laughs> was a, well, I just lost the, the point there. <laughs> it's, it's not easy preaching. You know, seven years, you're bound to say dumb things and make mistakes, and then somebody will, put whatever. That's right. Herod was a quasi-spiritual position. He was a ruler, but he also, uh, he, you remember Herod the Great wanted to kill the little babies uh, when they found, he found out about the Messiah because he considered himself the king of the Jews, but he appointed himself that title. That wasn't from God. So John the Baptist was very concerned with what Herod was doing and his actions. Verse 10, Jesus quotes Malachi 3 again, the word. The heralding of the Messiah. That's why John was so important, because of his M.O., because of what the Lord had called him to do. And the corollary after that's established is that even after John the Baptist doubted, Christ put him in the best light possible. You see, we see our failures. You see, listen, if we're not completely self-deceived and think we're wonderful and we do everything right and we're really human, we see that we have failures. I see my own failures. I see when I don't make a good point in a sermon. But God doesn't see us that way. Isn't that beautiful? John the Baptist had a moment of discouragement and doubt, and he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, really an insult, are you the Messiah, or should we expect somebody else? I'm languishing here in prison. The food's not good. I'm going to lose my life. But what did Jesus say? He pumps up John the Baptist. See, that's the what God thinks about you and I. And we tend to just attribute it to the men and women of the Bible. He loves you and you and you and you as individuals. He wants a relationship with you. And he sees you, especially if you've come to Christ, through the blood of Jesus. He sees you perfected. He sees you for what he's designed you to be. Right? He loves us. So he doesn't see us the way we look at ourselves sometimes. Verse, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Verse 11. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, meaning John the Baptist. Now, some of this stuff, and I have to tell you, a lot of prayer, a lot of study, um, some, of, some of this stuff is enigmatic. It's like a little puzzling, uh, the way Jesus speaks. And it takes really a lot of time to kind of sift through this. Number one, what does that mean? He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Well, number one, another, one idea could be that the glor- any glorified saint uh, anyone in heaven would certainly be better than the best person on earth. And that just goes to show you the difference between both of these kingdoms. Some of us live for the earth, but realize that kingdom is far more superior where we want to go than where we are right now. Second way to look at it is that the privileges of the new covenant are far greater, the age of grace, than the old covenant. Right? God made a new covenant, with, certainly with the children of Israel, with the Jews. He said that all the way back in Jeremiah 31. And we as, as Gentile believers as well get to partake of that new covenant. So he shows the, the, the greater or the greatness of the new covenant versus the old covenant. Remember, the bottom line is Jesus. Could you imagine being there at the time? You know, we have our commentaries and our Greek books and, you know, we can sit here and, and meditate on this stuff. And, but we have the Holy Spirit. But back then, he probably blew their doors off. 
All the people knew was rote, ritualization, corrupt religious system. And Jesus comes and he starts saying these things and he just blew their minds. You know, I'm sure it took a long time for them to really digest what he was saying. Verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Parallel scripture in Luke 16, 16, it's only one verse. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. I wanted to give you both of those before I explain this. Number one. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Some believe that this means that Jesus, as the embodiment of bringing the kingdom of heaven, suffered violence, right? He was beaten, he was scourged, and he was eventually crucified, okay? Uh, And certainly, uh, that brought others into the kingdom with his uh, substitutionary death on the cross. The second translation, or an alternate translation, is that the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. Again, Jesus being the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. It's forcefully advancing. In the age of Jesus, man, again, their doors were blown off. He taught things that they would have never considered on their own. Now, what we have grammatically, if you take the word suffers violence or the phrase, it has a reflexive and a passive application to it, for those of you who are into grammar. So it can either be, something can be done to it, or it can be done doing the the action. So we see both of them here. And the violent take it by force. In other words, the crowders, those who are crowding at that time into the kingdom of heaven with the advent of Jesus are taking it by force. Now that word is the same word used for the rapture. I love this. And after all my years of studying the scripture, I just got this. So the rapture where the Lord comes for us and he, he scoops us up before the world literally goes to hell in a handbasket. But check it out. With the advent of Jesus and the bringing of salvation, we rapture him first. We snatch him up. We want it. We want that salvation. And then later he comes and snatches us up before the world has to be judged. Isn't that amazing? So we rapture him and then he raptures us. And of course, there's a different uh, application there. But what we do we know is that with the advent of the Messiah, many were crowding into the kingdom of heaven. Everybody was trying to get in. And God's attitude is, I have plenty of room. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses will say that only 144,000 uh, could get into heaven. And I kind of make light of that and say, God didn't go to the permit office and build a big enough heaven, and you can only fit 144,000. But the truth is, in the Bible, God says everyone, all who who want to come are, are welcome. It's a, it's a, a, a world, a, a global application to bringing the masses into heaven. That would be very depressing if you think today we have um, about 7 billion people on the earth and maybe since man was originally created, you probably have quadrillions that have come and gone since then. Do the math. It's, it's astonishing. And imagine only 144,000 could get into heaven. I don't believe that. I believe God is trying to get as many people into his heaven as he can because he loves us that much. Amen. Verse 14. He says, if you are willing to receive it, he, John, is Elijah to come. Now, we can look at John the Baptist and Elijah. A lot of similarities here. Number one, Luke's gospel tells us that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Okay? 
A few things, similarities. Both Elijah and John had strong ministries. Two, they had similar styles and the way they, mannerisms, and similar uh, raiment or dress. We see that in the scripture. Three, they were both heralders. My favorite part, four, is that both follow Elijah. You know, when Jezebel says, I'm going to get you, and he takes off. And he's running away as fast as he can. And he just defeated all those prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So both Elijah and John the Baptist, now languishing in prison, sending his disciples to talk to Jesus, both suffered, suffered at least one, in Scripture, recorded period of discouragement. See, this is what I love. It just comes back to the best men, the best women that God had to offer were still human. You want to serve the Lord? You want to do something great for the Lord? And you get down on yourself? Don't be down on yourself. Because God sees you in a better light than you see yourself. And the fifth point, interestingly enough, in Revelation 11, when we covered our Revelation study, is that it does appear in the two witnesses that Elijah comes back. And there's some um, speculation. It's not named who the two witnesses are, but a lot of people who know the Bible believe that Elijah may be at least one of them. Verse 15, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. There was an awful lot done by God to get us salvation when we start really studying this. Do you want it? Do you want that salvation? Right? God did a lot. Jesus gave up his life. Jesus had to be marred by sin, which is something as the son of God that he didn't deserve. And there are believers in regions of Africa and the Middle East and, and Asia and um, all these places that are really literally losing their lives because they've laid hold of that salvation, because they're being persecuted. And sometimes I believe Satan deceives us here and we, oh, salvation, <sighs> it's yawn. Oh, I hear about salvation all the time. Don't, don't let Satan deceive you. It is an amazing thing that God did when you read these scriptures. Verse 16, Jesus says, but what shall I like in this generation? Or what shall I like in, yes, this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Now, Christ characterized his generation, and Christ told his disciples, his leaders, right, the leaders of the leadership, he told them that they had to be like children. They had to be converted as children. Although he's speaking about his generation childlike, or childish, excuse me, and there's a difference. To be like a child, which is what Jesus would want from us, is to be innocent, to trust God, to come to him you know, with open arms, you know, without any hatred or, or, or bad feelings. But to be childish is to be bratty and spoiled. You know, We love our children, but when they're good, they're really awesome. When they're bad, they can be pretty bad. So we're to be childlike, but not childish. They said, he said, they played the flute, indicative of a celebration, and you didn't dance. Look, we played the flute for you. You didn't dance. Well, that was protocol for playing the, fr- the flute. Uh, two, we mourn to you, indicative of a funeral or a somber occasion, and you didn't lament. Again, this was protocol to, for, a, for a somber occasion. See, 
this generation was spoiled. They were apathetic. They were fickle. You couldn't please them. Jesus came from one end of the spectrum, and John the Baptist came from the other end of the spectrum. And they're like, nah, nah. Anybody else you got to send my way? And I'm sure if there was a third person, they would have said, nah, and and dismissed them. So what we see is John the Baptist, fire and brimstone prophet, who didn't have time for social niceties. And their response was, the people, the leaders especially, he's crazy. He has a demon. He's a wild man with a leather belt and, and hair and eating locusts and honey, living out in the wilderness. He's nuts, man. Jesus, on the other hand, came gentle, gracious, spending time with the worst sinners of society. And the response, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's got bad associations. What do you you people want? The question is, can we look at our generation and make some analogies? Sometimes our attitude is, oh, we're so advanced in biotechnology and computers, in the military. You know, if you can't prove it to me, I'm not interested. Show me the miracle. Otherwise, I won't believe. They said that back then, too. What about the church? Sometimes the church can be transient. Sometimes the church, uh, there's some in the church that don't put down roots. They don't want to serve. They don't want to do, be stretched by God. Right? They don't uh, want to take a stand on the issues. They don't want to oppose their carnal friends. Well, there's a problem there, too. So we can make a lot of applications with this. And the question is, is there an excitement for God's word or is there an apathy? I was blessed, you know, not knowing the Lord and coming to a Calvary chapel. And as soon as I heard Pastor Lloyd start uh, reading from the Bible and using himself and uh, making some analogies, I was blown away. I'm like, this is awesome. This is what I've been missing all my life. I used to try to read the Bible, but I didn't know anything. But to have somebody actually read the Bible and make application, wow. Are we excited for God's word? Are we excited to see our loved ones get saved? In my 20s, I was excited for God's word. I'm still excited, and I still want to see people come to the cross. That's God's desire. Verse 19, he says, but wisdom is justified by her children. Maybe we might have an expression called the proof is in the pudding, if you've ever heard that. But wisdom, wisdom. God's plan of salvation. No matter how many today scoff at that, that's God's wisdom. And that is going to hold true. Is proved right by her children or justified. The fact is, from God's vantage point, which the naysayers, and even we at sometimes can't see, he's watching. He can see the spiritual realm and the physical realm. He's watching all the souls, the soul harvest from the time of Christ, crowd into the kingdom of heaven. And he smiles. And he's like, exactly. This is what I wanted to do all along. So wisdom is proved right by her children. His plan of salvation is saving souls. Verse 20. Then he began to upbraid or reproach the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That's interesting. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. 
So he speaks about the privileged generation, which we discussed. Now he speaks about the privileged cities, the ones that saw all the miracles that Jesus did. And some still, eh, not interested. What's amazing is that if you look today at Chorazin and Bethsaida and uh, Capernaum, go to the Middle East, you know, go to the land of Israel and look at some of these cities. They lie in ruins. You'll see a column here or there, an inscription, an artifact, but they're, they're wasted. Now, there are many other cities that are still intact from ancient times. So number one, those cities are lying in ruins, but more importantly, does Jesus really judge inanimate objects? The people behind those cities will be judged for their wickedness because of their privilege, because of knowing better, because of receiving light and then discarding the light. You understand that? Those of us who read the Bible, those of us who are taught the Bible, will be held more responsible than those who don't know anything. Now, maybe that's not a good analogy because we won't be judged as believers. We've already passed through the judgment. But those that have received the light of Jesus' teachings and the miracles, and they were all there, and they saw it, and they saw the guy that they grew up with who was blind, and all of a sudden he's walking around and he can see. They saw the guy who was a quadriplegic and begging at the local markets to be wheeled in and out. He's walking around. They saw all that, and they, eh, they don't care. They, they poo-pooed it. Where does it leave our cities? What do we have in America, even with a bad economy? We have the wealth of the world at our fingertips. I'm still amazed at how I can, you know, I'm trying to make beeswax candles with the, the beeswax, the extra stuff, and I couldn't find Wix anywhere, but I went online, Wix. Wow, look at that. I can order it online, a click of a mouse, they got sent to my house. So, um, you know, you, you can do anything here. You have the wealth of the world at your fingertips. You have the ease of, of computers, and we have so much privilege, but that's not the concern. The concern is, too, we have the light of Christ at our fingertips. In, in certain persecuted countries, they have to hide Bibles. Our missionaries to Afghanistan, um, the wife was telling me while the husband was away, the secret police came and started knocking on the doors because Bibles are illegal. Converting uh, somebody who's Muslim to believe in Christ is punishable by death in many countries. And she was telling us the story about how she had to take Bibles. And frantically, in the middle of the night, with her hand, she's digging and trying to bury these Bibles underground so that they don't get carted away in the middle of the night. Well, the police came and went, and nothing happened to them because they didn't find them. But in other countries, uh, Christians have to memorize pages because they can't be caught in public with those pages. But what, you know, you go to my office, most of us, if we've been around for a while, we have the King James Bible, the concordance, the commentaries, you know, the Greek, we have so much stuff at our fingertips. Even websites, you can click on and listen to a message and get a lot of variety of good Bible preaching on the internet. We have privilege. We have what God is doing in people's lives, getting them off drugs, helping to repair their marriages. And, and, and what happens in this country, a lot of people still scoff at it. Eh, doesn't mean much to me. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And he to whom the, the Son wills to reveal him. So notwithstanding everything you've heard, okay, let's put that on the side. 
Salvation is still freely offered, period. It's all throughout the scripture. God's desire is that all men and women would come to faith and that none would perish. That is his desire. You can see that in Isaiah 53 and all throughout the Old Testament. But what notice here is that the, a lot of the clergy, a lot of the high-minded, the privileged, weren't getting into the kingdom of heaven, but the simple folk were. Now, does that mean that God excludes intelligent people from the kingdom? Absolutely not. Does he exclude the rich or the privileged? Absolutely not. We can make a good case for the, for the Apostle Paul that he was a, really a scholar, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, taught under Gamaliel. Google Gamaliel. You'll find out who he is, a well-known rabbi at the time, uh, a man of privilege, all those things, and he still got saved. But the point was, was that this was a good old boys club. You see, uh, the game was fixed. If you were poor, if you didn't know somebody, if you didn't come from privilege, you didn't get anywhere in life. And Jesus was so excited that this was the plan of salvation, that those who were uh, uh, rejected or picked on or, or cast to the side or they would live and die and nobody would notice, they would put them in a field, you know, a mass field because they couldn't afford a good burial for them. God empowered them. You see, that's what God does. He empowers us. We don't have to have privilege. See, that's the beautiful thing. Some say, well, boy, how exclusive, how narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But isn't that better than I have money and you don't? I get in, you don't. You know, I was born to a good family, you weren't, so I'm going to get in and you're not. God came to level the playing field for everybody. Right? That was the beauty of that, God's empowerment. Verse 28, last few verses. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. First thing, come. We see that in Isaiah 55. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, in context, it was a hard life back then especially if you weren't of privilege. There was no retirement. There was no 401k. There were no pensions. You worked and worked and worked until you dropped in the field. So back then, even some portions of the world today, retirement at 60 or uh, you know, some y- younger ages is unheard of in other countries. We don't realize how good we have it here. So what happens is uh, Jesus was, was calling all those who were, who were heavy laden and burdened and says, I'm going to give you rest. Now, just let's look at this through a spiritual aspect, through a a mental aspect. He's concerned about all three, and a bodily aspect. The other problem was that in the Pharisaic religion, or those who controlled the religious system at the time, it was impossible to be pious. You had to jump through all these hoops. Jesus spoke of the Pharisees and says, you know, when you make a convert, you make them twice the son of hell that you are. You, You know, they made it so difficult to supposedly uh, be saved, but their salvation was a false salvation. What about life in general today? Some of you have come here with burdens. I said this in the beginning. Finances, relationships, um, past issues, addictions. I can't read between that frontal lobe there. I don't know what it's saying in there. But you know, Jesus wants to give you rest and there are some that take their baggage to the cross and they, they 
come up and they want to receive the Lord, but they still continue to carry that baggage. Jesus wants you to drop that. He wants you to take his pack because it's light and it's easy. In the Greek, the word for labor and heavy laden can also mean fatigued and overburdened. And the word for rest can mean refreshed. That's a great feeling. It reminds me of that, um, they say that if you have, listen, a lot of people in this area struggle with anxiety. You know, sure, some of you, when you leave church, got to do like 10 things, and then tomorrow you got deadlines to meet at work and all these kind of issues that are facing you in your life. So what happens is we get stressed out, and and it it tends to lead to anxiety. Actually, they teach you, if you have anxiety, not to breathe through your, you know, chest breathing, but to take that deep, uh, that diaphragmic breathing. It doesn't look real nice. But it works. You know, it's that deep alveolar oxygen saturation. And once you do that, it's just restful. You know, some of you are smiling. It feels good. It lowers your blood pressure. Yeah, feel that. It's good stuff, right? The second point, take my yoke upon you. Now, a yoke was a symbol of servitude in those days. A yoke looked like really an upside-down W. And you would put a yoke on two similar animals and then put the bar across and they would pull a team of oxen and they would plow up the ground. Take my yoke upon you. You might say, so basically I have to be in servitude to Christ? Yeah. But if you're not in servitude to Christ, you're in servitude to yourself. Do you realize that? We all carry one yoke or another. Jesus is like, try this one on. And, you know, when you come to the cross, you take off that yoke of the world and your, your own desires and your self-centeredness and uh, your pride and your ego and your, you know, driven nature. And, you know, it's just such a difficult yoke. Jesus says, take that off. Try this one off the size. Yoke to me. I'm going to help pull with you. Hey, doesn't that feel good? Oh, wow. It's cushioned. It fits me nice. I like this. Right? Some are scared. See, there's a fear aspect. Some are afraid to come to Jesus. I was before I became a Christian. I didn't know what he was going to make me do. There's fear, this fear of the unknown. And then after I came to Christ, I'm thinking, why didn't I do this earlier? Some are in fear of serving him, of really giving their whole heart. You know, my life is already stressed out. I can't give any more time to anybody, including the Lord. But he makes serving a joy, right? This isn't an act up here. I really enjoy what I do. I love giving God's word. You know, I don't always make the best points. I have off days. Uh, Sometimes I don't like my own messages, but I love to give the word of God. I love to see people get saved. And I love to see marriages grow. I love to see people serve and be different people from the way they were before. Leave that self-centeredness. So really, really take in what he's saying here. The third point, learn from me. Now, that word learn is synonymous with the Greek word for discipleship. So let me insert a different word. Jesus says, be discipled by me. The third point, be discipled by me. And I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. There are many who were uh, confused and walking around with a purpose with a Christian moniker because they haven't really fully understood what it means to be discipled by Christ. He didn't disciple the 12 to make their lives miserable. And once he sealed them with the Holy Spirit, they went out in power and in joy and and set the world on fire. 
Even the religious leaders were scratching their heads. These guys are unlearned. They didn't go to our schools. Where'd they learn this stuff? You know, because we got the best schools. We got the market cornered, and I don't see their names on the roster. How could they be doing these things? Ah, then they knew that they walked with Jesus. Okay, the light bulb goes off. Now it makes sense. Something to that guy. So I would just say this. For those of you who brought baggage to the cross, leave it here today. Walk out of this room in this sanctuary. Leave your baggage where it is. Now, I'm not asking you to leave your pocketbooks and stuff. I'm talking about spiritual baggage. The Lord wants you to have peace and serenity of mind. Enjoy your relationship with him. I had a great time. Heather did the um, women's Bible study, and we were just kind of you know, going back and forth talking about what Jesus says in John 14, his little banter with the disciples. And he speaks about, you know, they're like, well, where are you going? Well, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, well, you know, he goes back and forth with the word no. To know me, to know me is to know the Father. Show us the Father, and it is sufficient. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But what you don't see in the English is he starts with the word edu in Greek, which means just to know, head knowledge. And if you, if you have a Greek interlinear, towards the end of the banter, he goes into gnosko. Now, gnosko is the same word in English, to know, but what it means is completely different. It means have an experience with me. Have a familiarity with me. The only way you're going to have a familiarity with the Father is to have that familiarity and that experience with me. And the same holds true to us today. I want to encourage you. Now, in closing, we don't know the conversation with John the Baptist and his disciples when they returned. But I will tell you this. I believe that John was completely at peace after his disciples came back from being with Jesus. And I believe even after the, up to the point where he was going to put his head on the chopping block, that he had complete peace, that he came to his senses and he trusted in the will of God. But the cities of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, they took another path and only judgment awaits them. John gave all and is now in a place of honor and rest with the Lord. So Jesus goes from John to the upbraided cities, to his audience, which encompasses you and me today. So for those of you who don't know Christ, follow him today. Trust him and finally rest. Take that deep breath, rest. Two, for those of you who are part of the Christian culture but have no real relationship, you have that idu, but you don't have that gnosko, don't be afraid. Take a step of faith and yoke yourself to him finally. And three, for those of us who, or for those of you who have a relationship with him, but haven't given him your all, go forward, be a disciple, and experience true joy and fulfillment. Let's pray.